This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 20th of August, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, there's no end in sight for the Delta outbreak in New South Wales, the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan, and one war ends and another one begins. The government takes up arms in the history wars. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. Currently, I have 3,286,412 blades of glass in the backyard. Lone Star was a great movie directed by John Sayles, and it's a neo-Western mystery movie released in 1996. Well, why am I talking about that now? Well, we've had bad news. We received a Lone Star rating for our podcast. What did we do wrong? The reviewer said that we lack sophistication, we have a left-wing bias, and we're very shallow. David, this is very, very upsetting, but it's not all bad news. We have an overall rating of 4.2 out of 5, so you have to take the good with the bad in our line of work, and you can't please everyone all the time, can you? I'm still struggling to work out what's wrong with being unsophisticated, shallow, and left-wing. Was it Winston Churchill who said, if you're not making enemies, you're not standing up for stuff? So I'll go with that. And if you want to support New Politics, just go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. You can purchase one of our books or a T-shirt, become a supporter through our Patreon page. There are many, many ways to support, or you can just give us a review, as long as it's not a one-star review. COVID case numbers in New South Wales are becoming far worse than anyone anticipated, with the daily number doubling over the past week and predictions that it could reach 2,000 each and every day by the middle of September. In anybody's language, this is a public health disaster. The New South Wales government is banking on achieving a vaccination rate of 70 or 80% to take New South Wales out of this crisis before the end of October. It's unclear whether this can be achieved, but what is clear is that the Berejiklian government is embarking on a similar strategy to the Conservative government in Britain, where they ended their restrictions in mid-July, and now they are recording 34,000 cases and over 100 deaths every single day. And that's with a vaccination rate of 77% compared to the New South Wales rate of 21%. The big issue here is that the New South Wales government is not telling anyone about this strategy. The case numbers and death rates are going up in the UK, and that's to be expected if restrictions are removed. But would the people of Sydney be satisfied with 2,000 daily case numbers with more expected if restrictions are removed? Clearly not, Eddie. People are very angry now. For those of us who'd been looking at the Berejiklian government carefully since she became Premier, and really before, because it's really only the figurehead who who changes. We are not surprised, but disappointed. The rhetoric has been you have to live against the virus, we can keep things open. There's even been an underlying current of the virus really only kills useless people. And this is a very neoliberal, eugenic point. Now, what we do know about the virus is that it really doesn't pick favourites. Certainly, it's not good for older people with comorbidities to get it, but some of those people have got through it okay. It's not good for young people who are fit and healthy with no comorbidities to get it, and we have lost people to it, sadly and tragically. And 
has to be said avoidably. Every death in this current outbreak has been avoidable. And it's been avoidable because better management would have avoided it. The New South Wales government and the federal government are responsible for cases now in Melbourne, in New Zealand, and in Western New South Wales. For all their talk of it is the fault of a small minority of people, it's not the fault of a small minority of people. It is the fault of bad policy, badly applied. The New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she has burnt most of her political capital with the current management of the Delta outbreak. And that, of course, can be reclaimed. Politically, when you're looking at elections, there isn't an election in New South Wales until March 2023. So that's a long way away. But she would have lost less political skin if she did the hard lockdown several months ago. The economy would have been recovering by now. Not as many people would have been unwell or been contracting coronavirus. It would have been a totally different situation. Again, it gets back to the sort of problems that arise from these types of conservative governments where they create political problems and then they create other political problems to try and solve those political problems that they created in the first place. And now what we're mainly receiving from Gladys Berejiklian in those media conferences every day are key talking points that This is because of a small amount of people that have done the wrong thing. There's actually no evidence to suggest that. No one knew how Delta behaves. Well, actually, yes, they do. There's many, many examples around, not just within Australia, but around the world about how you deal with Delta. It's not a different virus. It it actually behaves the same way in every part of the world. She keeps saying that there is no rule book. Well, yes, there is. Look at all of those states that have managed the Delta outbreaks very successfully. She calls out the suburbs in southwestern Sydney and their Labor voting seats, by the way. And she keeps pushing the need for vaccinations to get anywhere between 50% and 80%. And who knows exactly what that number is because it seems to be fluctuating anywhere between 50% and 80% as the gateway to freedom. So these are all the talking points that she is using. But again, it gets back to not doing the right thing in the first place. If Gladys Berejiklian had committed that first lockdown successfully and very, very quickly at that time, we wouldn't be in this position that we are now where other political decisions are made to cover over those initial political mistakes that were made several months ago. They've treated it like a corruption crisis in the government in the way that you would manage the politics of it. Gladys admitted the other day that she thought things would be different in New South Wales. I've said consistently from the start, I have questioned the numbers that we've been getting, mainly because the testing rates have been low in areas, mainly because they treat parts of Sydney differently to other parts of Sydney. The army hasn't been sent into Bondi or Clovelly or Randwick or Manly or Monavale or Mossman. It's been sent into southwestern Sydney, western Sydney. I'm in one of the, uh, inverted commas, bad LGAs. We still get police helicopters flying over three times a day, checking people's backyards, presumably, checking for large gatherings of people. They're not really finding anyone. The other thing too, is that the health responses have been much different. And even if we were to go back and find that the language has been the same between the western suburbs and the eastern and northern suburbs, it doesn't matter. It's the perception. And people in Fairfield, people in Canterbury-Bankstown, people in Liverpool have heard a difference between the language spoken 
to the east and to the north as opposed to the west and the southwest. As a professional politician should understand, it's not what you do, it's not what you say, it's what you're perceived to have done and said that makes all the difference. So not only are we run by bad managers, we're run by bad politicians. People don't even understand the basic notion of how to run the politics of an event. And also leaders that need to resort to so much spin, obfuscation, mistruths, which is pretty much what Gladys Berejiklian is doing right now and Scott Morrison has been doing pretty much ever since he entered Parliament. And these are tactics and strategies that all politicians use. Whenever there is trouble, whenever there are political problems that need to be resolved, well, you use all of these techniques to cover over them. But when it happens too often and too many times, well, it's a sign of incompetence and a sign of poor leadership as well. They were brought in to make smaller government, all the while regulating the stuff they don't like. But smaller government being cutting red tape for business, cutting wages, cutting tax, cutting, 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 to make sure that their business friends can run the place without any filters on their behaviour. And that's what they mean by small government. They still want to be able to dictate how things are taught, who gets to marry who, who gets to own what, who gets to buy what, who gets to dress how they want. They want all that. They just don't want to be told to stop making money by fair and reasonable demands on safety, on honesty and, in, and on integrity because they have no concept of any of that. Well, also managing a pandemic, is, it's a little bit of a numbers game as well. Yesterday, that was on Thursday, the recorded number in New South Wales was 681. The highest number ever in Australia for any one day was 741 last year in Melbourne. And I know that there's a bit of a competition between Sydney and Melbourne. Maybe Sydney wants to break the record that Melbourne has had for some time. But what would be a reasonable number for the Australian community to accept? And it all gets down to what is an, an acceptable number politically for the community of Sydney and the community of, of Australia. It's more than likely going to be more than 700 case numbers today, but it is 1,000 a number that Australians can live with, 2,000? Obviously, numbers should be as low as possible, but what is politically acceptable for the Australian community? If you were to ask a range of people, you would get a range of answers from a personal level. Zero is the only acceptable, and zero is achievable. And zero should be the only way, because if you settle for less than that, you start to bring in, well, we wanted 100 cases, but it's at 120, so that's okay. Oh, well, it's slipped to 125. It's a disease that has potentially very damaging long-term effects with long COVID. It's a disease that can kill. It's a disease that is so contagious that masks and distancing may not be enough. And it will take three to six months for the vaccination efficacy to kick in. And when they talk, by the way, about 80%, they mean 80% of eligible people, which works out to about 56% because certain people aren't eligible, children, et cetera, et cetera. 
If they want 80%, they need 80% of 100% of the community, not 80% of 60% of the community. Again, no understanding of numbers and hoping that there's no one in the public who understands the numbers either. Well, there is some speculation amongst epidemiologists that the figures should probably be around 95% of the community Mm. when you're dealing with the Delta strain of coronavirus. But the other factor that we need to take into account is that when politicians start talking about This message of living with COVID or living with Delta, we know that they're just covering over the mistakes that they've made. Gladys Berejiklian is the only one, only political leader in Australia who is talking about living with the Delta strain, as is Scott Morrison. He started ramping up his language about that over the past couple of weeks. Both of those leaders are from the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party as well. So they've got the similar train of thought about managing COVID and managing the Delta strain. But when they start talking about living with COVID, that means that they're trying to cover over their mistakes. The objective should be getting the case numbers down to zero. That's what Australia had for four or five months. In every single state across Australia, there were no COVID cases at all. And that should be the aspiration, not this stuff about living with Delta and living with COVID. It's garbage. It's wrong. It's a show of weakness. It's a show of cowardice. It's a show of capitulation. It's exactly what we don't need. And I've said before, I think the whole New South Wales Parliament should be kicked out. I know that there are some very good people in New South Wales Parliament, but I think the whole New South Wales Parliament has failed us. We need to rebuild it. We need Governor Philip Game to come in and and dismiss the government, as he did in 1931. Unfortunately, this government works with business interests, not against them, like the Lane government. So... I highly doubt that that's ever going to happen, but we can live in hope. Well, there's also those business leaders that are affiliated with the Liberal Party, such as Tony Shepherd in New South Wales. They have been coming out very strongly to say that New South Wales and Victoria can't be locked down at the same time. And of course, it depends on what you're trying to measure and what the, the outcomes that you're looking for as well. But at what cost? Because studies have shown that those economies that stayed open, such as Sweden, they actually suffered worse economically because they had to deal with a health crisis as well as an economic crisis at the same time. Australia performed very well last year. They managed the pandemic incredibly well for most of 2020 and for the beginning parts of 2021. Economically, there was a downturn. We had a recession, but the Australian economy was able to bounce back very, very quickly in the early parts of 2021, mainly because of the way that they handled the health aspects of the pandemic. To say that New South Wales and Victoria can't be locked down at the same time, well, of course, that's going to affect economic output, but it comes down to the health costs as well. You can't just separate the economy from health outcomes as well. You note it's people who can afford to work from home or who have the facility to work from home. There's a lot of people, the construction industry, now the property developers in New South Wales wailed and tore their garments and gnashed their teeth when it turned out that construction zones are transmitters of the Delta virus just like everywhere else. And the government made the right decision to close construction for two weeks. Now they've opened it again because of the very bad messaging on vaccination. There are workers who don't want to get AstraZeneca because they can't get it because its side effects are no good for their health. And of course, there are those who just don't want it because they're worried that their side effects are bad. And so they want to wait for Pfizer. And on top of that, it's up to a six-week wait for bookings so that there are people who want to work, are happy to work, are happy to get vaccinated, 
but can't just yet. Now, again, had they sat down and properly thought, right, while this lasts, we bring in, even if it's taxable, I said this last week, $1,000 or $500 into every active bank account in Australia. People like Tony Shepard, who can isolate and who can do a comfortable isolation and who have no idea and who have no business commenting on health policy, really need to get out and see what it's like in the real world. Maybe then talk about not being able to close both Sydney and Melbourne. Maybe you should spend a couple nights in a hospital in Melbourne or in southwest Sydney where ambulances are being turned away and juggling between hospitals, where beds are filling, where 80 staff in one department had to stand down because they were close contacts of COVID. And of course, health professionals can't work from home in some cases. You've got to see the patients. You've got to manipulate the machines. They closed the breast screening. They closed cardiologists. They've closed stroke clinics. This is a health crisis of unprecedented standards. Someone has to start taking responsibility. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, the Taliban returns to take over Afghanistan and Australia decides to leave its friends behind. Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban and they've returned to government after they were first ousted in 2001, 20 years ago. They were never actually too far away and it wasn't really a surprise when the Taliban overran Kabul quickly earlier this week and took over the country again. There might have been successes earlier on by the United States and its allies, but as time went on, it was a war that no one really wanted, weren't even sure what they were doing there and nobody ever thought about developing an exit strategy. It's not well known, but Australia's longest involvement in any war was in Afghanistan. Australian troops were first committed by the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, in 2001, and the last batch of troops left recently in June. And he still believes that the mission was a complete success. On your own objectives, there's no way this mission can be viewed as anything other than a failure, is there? I don't totally accept that. I, I, I understand the argument, but we've got to remember that um, since we went into Afghanistan, there is no evidence that a major terrorist attack has been orchestrated out of Afghanistan. There have been terrorist attacks and there are undoubtedly elements of Al-Qaeda still in Afghanistan. And the Taliban, of course, which on occasions is completely indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda, uh, is a very potent force. But the truth is that the great fear of the United States Australia and of the West after the 11th of September, that there would be other attacks orchestrated out of Afghanistan. That has not materialised. So on that criterion, uh, the mission, whatever may be said of it, has not been a failure. Judged by the original reason for going in, it was a total success. I'd suggest that 
the return of the Taliban, leaving all of the artillery behind to the people that you were trying to defeat in the first place, having thousands of Afghans trying to flee the country in whichever way possible, a $2 trillion cost for the war, and failing to achieve the goals of the mission, these are not really great signs of success, but John Howard did have a good way of covering over his failures. Now there's a scramble for the Australian government to retrieve the many Australian workings in Kabul, as well as those Afghan interpreters who supported the Australian troops while they were in Afghanistan and are now vulnerable to attacks from the new Taliban government. The Australian government was warned about this as early as three years ago and consistently over the past few months that they needed to get Australians and those Afghan interpreters out of the capital, yet they chose to act when it was far too late. There's a lot of people who are going to be left behind in Afghanistan. It's, it is a tragedy. If I'm struggling for words, it's because like so much of this it's been managed by governments who don't want to act and when they do act act way too late and way too ineffectually now joe biden took the blame for what's happened to his credit it was donald trump of course who announced that u.s troops would be removed from afghanistan by august or september but it seems that he did nothing to start that process and certainly the Biden administration has done nothing or done very little. In Australia, it's been worse. Morrison announced it very quietly earlier in the year um, without a lot of fanfare. And this is also the war in which we've seen suggestions or even evidence of horrible war crimes being committed by Australian troops. We've seen absolutely no military or geopolitical gain from this war. It was America's longest overseas war. It was also Australia's longest overseas war, longer than Vietnam, for example. It is a country that has had constant war since about 1830 from foreign governments. And that's because there's an idea popularized by Rudyard Kipling in the novel Kim, but it was British foreign policy. It's known as the great game. We really don't have time in this podcast to talk about it in depth. But the great game refers to the idea that to control the world, you need to control the center of the world. And the center of the world, and the ridiculousness is that it's a sphere. So there is no center, really. But the center of the world is approximately Afghanistan, much like a chess player tries to control the center four squares of a board, at least in the early and middle stages of the game. The empires of the day tried to occupy that area, Afghanistan and surrounding areas. I like to point out that the first Sherlock Holmes novel, printed in 1887, but actually set in 1881, opens with Dr. Watson, the narrator, being wounded at the Battle of Maiwand in Afghanistan and then being sent home to England on a soldier's pension. One of the clever things about the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch, which moved the Sherlock Holmes stories into the modern day, was that it opens with Martin Freeman's Dr. Watson being wounded in Afghanistan and being sent to England on a soldier's pension uh, 130 years later. The Russians spent, what, 1979 to 1990 and achieved nothing except humiliation. The Americans 
achieved nothing except humiliation, and then to leave people and people who they'd allegedly been defending and to leave them in the lurch. One of the most heartbreaking images of this heartbreaking year of 2021 is watching those people fall off the plane as they're trying to grasp onto it to get out of the country. They were likely not going to survive the cold temperatures of the plane's altitude anyway, but that's how desperate they were. In Australia, we have not committed to help any of those people who, at great personal risk and little personal gain, helped Australian troops, translators, supply line people, some combatants. They are now stuck in a place where the government is very angry at them and will probably have them tortured and killed. I can't see how they see this as the right thing. There's some talk that this is a strategy of Morrison to try and get refugees headed to Australia so he can stop the boats again. I don't know that that's true. I hope it's not true, and I don't think it'll work for him anyway. But it's well within the perception of the character of the man that he would be so grubby as to do that. I've spoken to nominally liberal voting people who are appalled at the behaviour of just leaving that the withdrawal should have been much more ordered, much more humanitarian, much safer for those who are now left behind with nothing. And I don't like the narrative that the Afghan soldiers stopped fighting because they hadn't been paid in six months. Even the most patriotic soldier needs to be paid. Well, every military adventure in Afghanistan has been laced with failure. Three wars with British invaders during the 19th and 20th centuries. You referred to some of those before. The Soviet Union between 1979 and 1990. The US and the Allies after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. Afghanistan has a difficult terrain and a lot of these invaders that have gone in, they think, oh, well, that's not a problem. We can do better than the previous invaders. Uh, We can do better than the Soviets. We can do better than the British. We'll succeed here. But it hasn't turned out that way. $2 trillion is the cost of this particular war. It's excellent business for military hardware manufacturers, and it was a boost to the American economy. Essentially, this is what most wars are about. It's about gaining economic control, supporting the military economy. But this seems to have been a total waste. There were some successes in what the US was trying to achieve. It did defeat al-Qaeda to some level, but then al-Qaeda just moved elsewhere. It moved into Syria and moved to other parts of the world. It did defeat the Taliban at that stage, but now they're back. So that doesn't seem like a successful story at all. The interpreters who did work with the US and the Australian military, they've become targets now. So it's not just them, but their families as well. 300 have been killed since 2016 by different rebel groups, including the Taliban. And this was deemed to be a critical issue earlier on this year. For most of this year, many people have been saying, and many experts in the field have been saying, you've got to pull these people out. It looks like the Taliban are coming. They've got control over the entire country except for Kabul. It should have been done a lot earlier. It was clear that the US and the Allies were making noises about pulling out of Afghanistan. This is the likely outcome, and that's what a lot of people suggested during that time. They should never have been there in the first place, of course. I I don't think I can add anything to it, just how to mismanage foreign policy. It's no better in Britain. Apparently, Dominic Raab was on holidays and refused to take phone calls about it as British Foreign Secretary. Maurice Payne is our Foreign Secretary at the moment. Now, I'll be fair, it could have been much worse. But I don't know that even if she personally is up to the job, I don't think there's the political will to support her in in doing the job. 
Well, the Taliban is not a women-friendly regime. It's an ultra-conservative authoritarian regime that misuses interpretations of the Quran to justify its actions. The Taliban is now saying that, yes, it is a different organisation, it's a different type of government to its previous iteration between 1996 and 2001, but that's yet to be seen. We just don't know how this Taliban government is going to behave, but we only have to look at five years of evidence between 96 and 2001. This is what their behaviour is. And instead of offering support, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton, they're now dog-whistling about this whole process. They are suggesting that these interpreters... They didn't actually want the support in the first place. The fighters within Afghanistan didn't want the support of the Allies and the Australian government. And there's also those suggestions that Australia gave them the arms that they didn't want, and now it's all their fault. And and now they're suggesting that these Afghan interpreters, if they did come to Australia, well, they would pose a security threat. Scott Morrison has also been suggesting that no asylum seeker who is currently in Australia from Afghanistan, who arrived by boat, will benefit from this process. Here's Scott Morrison during the week outlining his intentions. We will only be resettling people through our official humanitarian program going through official channels. We will not be offering a pathway to permanent residency or citizenship. We will not be allowing people to enter Australia uh, illegally, even at this time. Our policy has not changed. We will be supporting um, Afghans uh, who have legitimate claims through our official and legitimate processes. We will not be providing that pathway to those who would seek to come any other way. That is a very important message. The government's policy has not changed, will not change. Even at a time of need, the Australian government cannot be depended on to offer support to people that have supported the Australian military in Afghanistan. And Morrison, it seems like he prefers to pander to his supporter base, which seems to be identical to the base of Pauline Hanson as well. Morrison and Dutton, they're not foreign affairs experts. Afghanistan may as well be a completely different planet as far as they're concerned. They're only concerned about their supporter base in those federal seats that they need to hold on to win at the next election. So even if there's a catastrophe in Afghanistan, they're not going to change their tune at all. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. And from one war to another, but a different kind, it's never the wrong time for the federal government to make a declaration of war. And this time it's the continuing culture war and the history war. Now I did mention before that Australia's longest involvement in a war was in Afghanistan. That wasn't actually correct. The culture and history war commenced in 1996. And it might end up being longer than the 30 years war that ended in 1648 in the Roman Empire. The Federal Education Minister Alan Tudge 
Now, if you're wondering who that is, that's the minister who keeps talking about being a family man but was having affairs with his young female staffers. He's decided that even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, it's a good time to continue with the culture and history war. And and if you need some more reminders, Alan Tudge was also the one who developed the concept for robo-debt while he was a fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. Now, he has announced that he won't accept the draft national curriculum because it has a warped and negative understanding of Australian history. And I've had a look at the draft curriculum, and to me, it looks pretty good. The The world is a much broader place than it was when Alan Tudge went to school. Our understandings of history are, are far broader than they were 30 years ago. There are some areas where science could be improved within the draft curriculum, but I think overall, the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, they're the ones responsible for developing the national curriculum. They've actually done quite a good job. It's a difficult thing to write a curriculum for high school. We've moved away from the great man view of history where pale, stale males came in and fixed everything for everybody else and we all should be very happy and if there were a few deaths along the way then that's just the way things were bad luck get on with it i think it is very important now i am a historian i have an honors degree from the university of new south wales which i got in last century i have written on history I have lectured in history at a tertiary level, also to public groups. I was a member of the Professional Historians Association for a few years, and I have a deep interest in this stuff. These first shots in the history wars were really fired by Keith Winshuttle, and he'd say, no, 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 they were fired by Henry Reynolds. But nobody really contested Henry Reynolds in a major way until Keith Winshuttle wrote his book saying that Henry Reynolds basically got the history wrong and that there weren't as many Aboriginal massacres and deaths at the hands of white people as we've been told. And Keith Winchuttle looked at the public record, the government record, which whitewashed, for want of a better term, the whole history of it. When you have a deeper look at private records at correspondence between those who were there, those who were near. When you look at newspaper reports, a slightly different picture comes out of what happened. Now, the other thing too to remember is that Indigenous history exists and is really important to the continent of Australia. People, you'll occasionally hear people say, oh, we've got such a short history, only 230 years. And I'll often say plus 40,000 years or 60,000 years of Indigenous history. And then sometimes you'll get the, oh, but it's not really history because no one wrote it down, which is odd because it's a, till you know, the 1850s, it was a, a, probably 1788 if we're being really brutal. It was a fairly well-preserved historical record in oral traditions and in pictograms and, and things like that. Plus the archaeological record is is very strong. Well, oral history and written history are equally as important as each other. Well, we do oral histories every week on our podcast, so it actually is as important as the written word. 
But the other factor to take into account is that this is actually old news. Alan Tudge did bring it up during this week, but he it's the same report that he released beginning of this year and towards the end of last year as well. He first talked about this idea of warped history late last year. Maybe he didn't get the reaction that he was after and he's trying again, trying to push his message within the conservative media. History is always going to be a contest of ideas. And if you're having a culture war or a history war, well, you've got two sides of the argument. But it just seems that my reading of this is that the conservative side of politics in Australia, Mm. led by someone like Alan Tudge, they want to see more of a vainglorious side of history that puts Australia in a positive light and leaves behind all the stuff that they don't want to hear about or upsets that positive history that they want to talk about. And that's not the point of history. That's History isn't just about putting out the history or the stories of the victors. You need to take the good with the bad when it comes to recording of history. It's history as a PR exercise. And Alan Tudge, from what I can see, isn't a terribly intellectually curious person. I don't think he's got much of a grasp of what history is or what it means. History is not a linear story. It's not a story of progress necessarily either. It's a story that happens and we try and make sense of it. Some people try and present the history of Australia, say, as a progress from 1788 or 1770 when Cook comes and to make it into, look, and here we are in 2021 and things are much better than they were before. And on one level, that's not incorrect. But on another level, it's not correct either. Things happen. Bad things happen. We should acknowledge the bad things that happen because till we acknowledge them, we can't move past them. If we look at the social statistics of Indigenous Australia, we have absolutely failed. I think it's starting to maybe get a little tiny bit better now, and I'm more than happy to be told I'm wrong by people who know, because I'm coming from it from outside too. But it's a long way from being anywhere near good. When you look at life expectancies, jailing rates, addiction rates, education rates, employment rates in Indigenous Australia, they're terrible and there's no excuse for it. And there's never been an excuse for it. So the tiny bits of progress we've made are cancelled out by the progress that we haven't made. And once again, this seems to have been brought up as a distraction. I don't know what it's trying to distract from because there's a lot of major news out there that is uh, difficult to shift at the moment. There's the high case numbers in New South Wales, There's the fall of Afghanistan that happened during the week as well. So I'm not exactly sure what the deflection is all about. But once again, you know that they're just trying to score political points when they they dismiss the national curriculum as neo-Marxist rubbish without an understanding of Karl Marx or an understanding of history. It was actually Karl Marx who said that history always repeats itself, first of all as tragedy and then second time as farce. But it seems like Alan Tudge has combined the two repetitions of history and created an absolute calamity and a disaster in his own mind. This is a guy too who has had some very serious accusations made of him that haven't been properly addressed yet. It never ends well either for government members who try and ignite the history wars without an understanding of history, what it means or how it's done. It's only going to be a minor distraction and it's going to be blown out of the water in the next week as uh, numbers in Melbourne and Sydney go up. I think you should maybe look at being a better minister and a better person rather than trying to enter into fields he knows nothing about. 
That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.